Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is re-digging wells. There's this story in Genesis about wells that somehow over time got filled in with dirt or earth or whatever. We'll talk about that a little more in a bit. And uh, then it came time to redig those wells. And this it got me interested. So we're going to be looking at this image of redigging wells and what that might have to do with anything else. And so if you'd like to join me on that journey, let's open with a prayer. Good friends. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You are the one God of heaven and earth. You bowed the heavens and came down into, the, into this world as the living word. We pray for your presence among us as we study the pages of your word, Lord, and seek to understand your heart and your mind. Amen. Amen. Sending love out to those of you who are uh, watching online and those of you who are on the phone and here in the room and getting the audio podcast. Great pleasure to be with you. And uh, the, one of the things that fascinates me about Scripture is these patterns. Scripture is full of patterns. And Swedenborg talks sometimes about the fact that uh, Scripture uh, seems on the surface of it like it was written by a poor writer or it was badly edited or so. You know, there are strange repetitions and there are important details that are left out and so on. And I think a lot of people in Swedenborg's time in the 18th century who, you know, sort of sophisticated, learned types felt like, why should we pay attention to this old doc? You know, it's not even well written. You know, you'd be much better off reading the works of someone else, you know, where it's more elegant and finely crafted. You know, this is sort of... Uh, the, the Latin word he uses is rudis, like it's sort of rude. It's like, uh, you know, just kind of bumpkinish or something. It, it, it's, it's not a great uh, document. To me, the more I study it, I'm just amazed at the patterns that emerge. And when you start to realize that the patterns have some meaning to them, even if we can't see it, I often feel, as some of you may have heard me say before, like a, a small child watching a ping pong game. And I have no idea what the rules are. I don't know who's winning, but there's something amazing going on. The ball is going back and forth and flying back and forth, you know. And uh, that's how I feel when I read scripture often, that there's something is going on. There are rules, something's happening. I don't get most of what's going on, but, but something interesting is happening. I'd like to show you an example. Let's go to Genesis all the way to the left in your Bible. Oh, my goodness. Uh, things are so amazing. Let's go to Genesis 21. Why don't we start there? There's so many layers to this, we couldn't, couldn't do justice to it. But there's a situation in Genesis 21 where one of the patriarchs, th this is just one basic pattern that we're talking about tonight, where the patriarchs make a covenant with the king of the Philistines, so they make a covenant, they make an agreement together, and then they immediately get in an argument about a well. Uh, it's just an odd little... First of all, if you're making an agreement, why not have your argument first, settle that, and then make your agreement? You know? It's a little weird to make your agreement first and then have an argument. So let's look at Genesis 21 and start at verse 22. This is about Abimelech the king of the Philistines. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Mm. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. Yes, because Abraham had to go down there because there was a famine. And okay, and then look at verse 24. And Abraham said, I will swear. Good, swear. So now the covenant is formed. He swore. And what's the thing that happened in the very next verse? 
Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. Oh, so you make an agreement and then sort of all good? Yes, except for that well, you know, like Abraham's position is that's my well and your servants took my well away. They're claiming it. Now, you picture yourselves, good friends, in a desert land. The wells are life and death. I mean, you control the water, you, you control everything, right? So it's a big deal if someone's taking your, your uh, you know, so this is quite an accusation that Abimelech's servants had violently taken away this well of water. Go on. Verse 26. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. And you did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. Yeah, so often you sign an agreement and then there's some surprise right after. So he said, I didn't know anything about this. You, you didn't tell me. This is the first I've heard of it. I, I've been, uh, you know, innocent of this whole thing until this very day. Okay, go on. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Okay, it's sort of like they already made the covenant. Okay, here they go. They, they, he hands over these sheep. And they make this covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? Oh. And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. I dug this, okay. So the, you know, okay, we're doing other exchanges and so on. We got our covenant going and everything. But I'm going to set aside these seven ewe lambs because they're the sign that this is my well, you know. In other words, the fine print, if they had fine print back then, it would say, by accepting these ewe lambs, you agree that this is my well, not yours. Go on. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Oh, so Beersheba means the uh, well of the sevenfold oath. It's a well of this oath, and there were seven animals that were part of this oath. So the well of the sevenfold oath. Okay, go on. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Okay, so this was their exchange. Get together, form an agreement, have a fight about a well, sign the covenant, hand over some animals, and say, that really is my well, I'm not kidding, and then they, <laughs> then they depart, you know? Okay, so that's sort of the pattern of what's going on there. And I just have to say that I'm not even mentioning the fact that back in Genesis 12, Abraham took his wife down to Egypt and said that his wife was his sister so that they wouldn't kill him because she was beautiful. And then in Genesis 21, if you look at the beginning of the chapter there, uh, or wherever it is, no, that's, it's a little later than that. But uh, he does this again. Uh, with, with Sarah, Sarah, but this time he goes to the Philistines and he says that his wife is a sister. So uh, now let's look at Genesis 26. But we're not talking about the wife and the sister thing. I just had to mention it. So look at 26 verse 1. Just a few chapters later, right? Some time has elapsed and everything. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now for some reason that just tickles me. I like that. There was a famine. No, this is, this is not the same famine. This is a different famine. So the reason that Abraham had gone down there in the first place was that there was a famine. So the text is explicitly saying there was another famine, not like the first famine, the Abraham famine. This is another famine. And now we're in the time of Isaac. Okay, so what does Isaac do? And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, I don't know if, you know, you could absorb everything we just read in 21, but Abimelech was the king of the Philistines when Abraham went, and they went to Gerar, and now Isaac goes to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. So we're having deja vu, and the text is even kind of signaling it by saying, this is not the same famine, but I know it looks a lot the same, you know. But Isaac went down. Okay. And in verse 2, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Don't go to Egypt. Go to this other place. And he sends him to um, Gerar. 
So, and then you see in verse 6 that Isaac lived in Gerar, and he passes his wife off as his sister. Now, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, got in a lot of trouble last time this happened. He ought to be wise to this thing now. This is Abraham's son, but he's totally blindsided by the sister and the wife thing, and, and that's a big deal, and we won't read about it. Good. Okay, and then, uh, and again, in both cases, Abraham gets greatly enriched by these trips. It's just amazing, you know, he's just abounding. And now Isaac is doing the same thing. He gets greatly enriched. You see in verse 12 that he receives a hundredfold, you know, in that some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. You know, a hundredfold is like top return on your crops and everything. The Lord is blessing him, and he becomes very, very great. Uh, let's pick up at verse 13 there in Genesis 26. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Yes, that's Isaac. <laughs> the Bible is well edited. It's not repetition. It's going. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Oh, he envied him. And go on. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. Oh, they had filled these wells. So Abraham and his servants had dug all these wells. What a weird thing to do. It's sort of hostile, isn't it? Isn't it kind of like setting fire to the oil fields or you know, when you're at war or something like that? It seems like a hostile act to fill in somebody else's wells. Rather than benefit from it, like why, why wouldn't you just say, like they did before, just, oh, it's my well, and just use the water. Why would you fill it in? It's so much work to create a, a well out there in the desert and everything. Amazing. But they had stopped them up. Go on. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Yes. Okay. That's friendly. Okay. Then, and what did Isaac do? Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. Which is not far away. It's the valley of Gerar. They were just in Gerar. Now they're in the valley of Gerar. So he didn't go very far. And what did Isaac do with and, his free time? And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. As we may have just heard three verses ago. Yes. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Interesting. So these wells had names, and he called them by the same names they used to be called by. So this is where our title comes from tonight, redigging wells. What Isaac is doing is he's redigging these wells that his father had created and the Philistines had filled in. Uh, go on. Also, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water. There. Oh, now wait a minute. So the first time we talked about this, there was an agreement and uh, they talked about a well. There was just one well, right? He rebuked him about the well and there was just that one well and they fought over whose well it was and he gave him seven ewe lambs to say that it's his well. But this time, Isaac's digging all kinds of wells. All the well, he's digging, he's redigging them all, a whole bunch of them. There's not just one well. But then, what did it say at the beginning of verse 19? Didn't it say also? Yes. Also, they I... dug a new well that hadn't been dug before. Right? Sounds like it. Yeah, they dug in the valley and they found a well of water. That's right, running water. And what do you think happened? But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen. What is all this fighting over the well? Okay, so now we're fighting over a well again. Okay, what do they say? Saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they quarreled with him. Esek means contention. So here's a well. We'll have a good fight about it. We'll call it contention. He's been renaming all these other wells. This one's called contention. Okay, go on. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. Why not? It's just fun. That's what you do. Dig a well, have a nice fight. So they dig another well, and they're having a fight about it. And what do they call so that they one? They called its name Sitna. Oh, and Sitna means strife. Now, I'm not exactly what the difference between contention and strife is, but they're both rather contentious, strifey kind of names. My, my so they. 
quarrel and enmity. So those are quarrel and enmity. That's yeah. what it says in your notes. Yes, mm -hmm. good. So it's quarrel and enmity, which is about the same as contention and strife and so on. And okay, so what does he do? And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. Now, what is it with the kids? You know, they fight over the first toy, they fight over the second toy, and then the third toy, there's no fighting. I don't understand it. But for some reason, they didn't fight over this third one. And what do they call it? So he called its name Rehoboth. Okay. Because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Very interesting. So there's a whole lot of wells, and they dug all the old wells, and now they've dug three new wells, fighting over the first one, fighting over the second one, but the third one there's not fighting over. So bizarre. And so where does he go up from there? Then he went from there to Beersheba. Oh, to Beersheba, which is the well of the sevenfold oath. Another well, right? Okay, go on. And, and the, this is Isaac. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Hmm. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And guess what happened next? And there Isaac's servants dug a well. They dug a well. We can't get away from them around here. Okay, and so uh, then uh, verse 26, let's keep going. This is good fun, isn't it? Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, Ahuzath. <laughs> one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why... And by the way, I like this line. Remember this line that Isaac says. If you're in this situation, remember this. Isaac said to him, why have you come to me since you hate... <laughs> since you hate me and have See, sent me away from you. Isn't that you. great? You know, if you have an awkward dinner guest or something, why are you here since you hate me? You know, it's just an interesting... <laughs> So Abimelech comes chasing after him through the wilderness, and Isaac says, Why are you here, seeing that you hate me? Go on. And have sent me away from you. Mm. But they and said, what does he say? Same thing they said to his father. Go on. We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. Oh, so the Lord, that's what they said. That's what Abimelech said to Abraham. The Lord is with you. And so we want to have a covenant with you because the Lord is with you. And so they're saying the same thing to Isaac. So what do they say? So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Here we go again. So all these wells, and now we're going to have another covenant in the midst of all these wells. Go on. That you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Mm. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. They ate and drank. Isn't that nice? Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. That's right. And so, you know, there's the discussion of the oath, and there's the actual swearing of it. So here they're, they're swearing the oath. They're making a covenant. Go on. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. They departed from him in peace. So what's the next thing that happens? It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. This is another. So the covenant have another well. You know, it's, it's just bizarre. <laughs> what is going on? And there's permutations on the story. But what is all this covenant and well business going on? And so what does he call it? So he called it Sheba. Hmm. Therefore, the name of this city is Beersheba to this day. Well, that's hmm. the second explanation we've had tonight for the naming of Beersheba. It was named Beersheba a long time. You know, Beersheba started coming to the story a long time ago. I think Hagar goes out to the valley of Beersheba along. So it keeps getting named and named. So they're sort of renaming it after this well, because again, Sheba means a well. Uh, so this is the well of the sevenfold oath and all that. So we'll, we'll stop there. But um, there's just to me, it's so amazing. There's something so amazing about the scripture. Um, and I was interested to see this as well. If you can turn to um, the middle of the book, go to Psalm 34. don't know if this even has this little detail in your... But you know, King David was like way, 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 way later than all these events. 
And King David at some point went to the king of the Philistines, whose name was Achish, and he had to act all insane. Like it was a really challenging situation and David acted all insane and he dribbled spittle in his beard and tried to act all crazy. To, and so the king just said, oh, I'm not going to deal with David. And so here's a psalm that he wrote at that time. And what does it say? Which number? 34? It's right actually before verse 1. It's oh, the heading of the psalm. Which psalm? Psalm 34. I'm Thank so sorry. You. I'm so sorry. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away, and he departed. It wasn't Abimelech. It was Achish. It wasn't Abimelech. David, hundreds of years later, is still, the, like the king of the Philistines, is still called Abimelech. You know what I mean? It's like, what, did the guy live for 600 years or something? He's a thousand years? Uh, uh, it's very interesting that that says Abimelech there. It's just fascinating. Hmm. that, And it seems like whatever Abimelech is, See, Swedenborg says that Abraham uh, has something to do with the Lord, with the Messiah when he was in the world. Abraham has something to do with his inner heavenly nature. Isaac has something to do with his rational mind. And David is also a figure of the Lord in the world. And it's interesting that all three of them end up talking to Abimelech, you know. It's just that they put that name in there, even though technically it's the wrong name. The sort of thing that Someone who's just looking at it from a worldly perspective would say, well, they got the name wrong. It should be Achish. But I don't think they got it wrong. There's something about the Lord and Abimelech. You know, they're having some conversation. All right. Let's see if I can make this more obscure for you. Um, now, okay. Oh, and by the way, Rehoboth, Esek means contention. You know, Sipna means quarreling and strife and whatever. But Rehoboth means wide streets. Hmm. Now, if you're ever digging a well in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, wide streets would be an odd name for it. I would submit. Would you agree? I mean, you're nowhere near a wide street. So why is that third well called wide streets? And now everybody gets along. There's a well called Wide Streets, and then everybody gets along. Everybody's okay. So what, what is going on here? All right. Okay. Let's, uh, okay. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. All right. Let's have a graphic, which won't help in the least. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here is a picture of a well. I tried to draw it. For those of you just getting the audio, I just drew sort of a a horizon here and sort of mountains in the distance. And then you have a deep well. The way that they would do these wells back in the day was that they would carve, you know, like the, it would be narrower at the top than it was at the bottom because you're trying to keep the water from evaporating. And so you've got water. I pictured water in the bottom of this well, uh, but all this stuff, all this dirt in between there and the surface. So you hardly even know it's a well anymore. You don't, you don't know it's there anymore because somebody filled the whole thing in. It's all, all full of stuff. Okay, first point. What is it full of? Well, in the, in the New King James and the Old King James, it says earth. They filled them with earth. It is significant to me, perhaps no one else, that the actual Hebrew word is Dust. This is dust in here. It is exactly the same word. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and look at a story about dust because it's sort of important what, you, what went wrong here. What did you fill your well with? What is all that? How did that happen that your well got all filled? And what was that? So let's look at 3 and look at verse um, 14. You may remember the story of the Garden of Eden and the serpent. And in 3.14, what does the Lord God say? So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. That's the same Hebrew word. You'll eat dust all the days. So there's an association of dust with this serpent. Swedenborg says the serpent means what is outermost in our lives. It's our 
physical senses, it's physical pleasures, it's a worldly perspective, you know, it's sort of a materialistic take on things. Uh, that's the serpent, and so the serpent is going to eat dust, and Swedenborg associates dust uh, with damnation. He talks about this accursed dust that exists in hell, this, this, this stinging sort of powder and, and stuff. And um, uh, so there's something about dust. It's not good soil that you can grow something in. It's just all the bits. You know, it, it doesn't have enough fluid and everything. That's the dust. And look at verse 19, because <laughs> when Adam is cursed, he's told he's going to have to work and the ground will be cursed for his sake, and it'll bring forth thorns and thistles. And look at verse 19, this famous statement. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Same word again. So you're taken out of the dust, you're going to go back to the dust. So this is about uh, very external things. Okay, uh, so, good friends, I don't know how to go about this. Uh, uh, the well, Swedenborg says, is a picture of the Word. The well is a picture of the Word. And the water in it is teachings from the Word. It's wisdom. Uh, in particular, most interestingly to me, Swedenborg says that what is in these wells that Isaac was digging was, uh, what that corresponded to, was ancient wisdom that had been lost. Ancient wisdom covered in dust. Like we've, just, we've lost it. And Swedenborg will even be so bold to tell you basically what the topic of that ancient wisdom was, that ancient wisdom was a wisdom about how to love other people. Surely this is the most challenging thing ever, isn't it? Uh, and even talking about what love means, you know, some people would say, well, love is a funny feeling when you see someone or something like that. Uh, I think what's being talked about here is more that it's the way that we treat other people. And the most loving way to treat other people is to be wise enough to do and say things that really advance their spiritual life, you know, that make them better people. Like the wisdom to know, okay, you're stuck in this awkward state, but if I just gave you a, a leg up here, or if I helped you here, maybe you could get out of that situation. And, and so uh, Swedenborg says that the ancients, it sounds bizarre now, but um, that the ancients had this tremendous wisdom about how to love. That was the main thing that they were interested in. Long, long, you know, thousands of years ago. Main thing they were interested in was how to love people. And part of their whole teaching about how to love people was that they would categorize their neighbors. They understood, oh, this person's spiritually thirsty, and how you treat a thirsty person is you give them this truth. This person's spiritually hungry, this person's spiritually lame, this person's spiritually, you know, whatever it is, you know, widowed or orphaned. Or, they'd have all these categories, not for prejudice or something, but to know how best to help somebody. Because isn't it the truth? Some people need tough love. Some people need a tender word. You know, it, it, different, different things are what people need at different states and different times in their lives and different personalities. You know, s some people kind of need a kick or something. Uh, some people need some gentle encouragement or compassion or whatever, uh, expression of compassion. And um, so knowing how to love our fellow human beings, Swedenborg says that used to be the chief science. They studied that. They studied it. And they were experts at it. And they would trade information. The schools were all about that. Uh, this ancient wisdom was how to be of benefit and to get really good at figuring out, oh, I think this is a hungry person, you know? So I'm going to try this and see, see if that works to help them along in their life, you know? This science 
of how to love others. Uh, at this time, when some poor soul is shooting people randomly from a balcony, does it seem like we've forgotten a little bit how to do this? Does it seem like we have lost our way a bit and that whatever idea was in his head just doesn't look much like love to anybody else? Like, you know, what are you doing? You know, it's the opposite of this love. We've lost, this well has just been filled up. So what happened? We still have scripture. We have the Bible, right? What happened? If this, this is a picture of the Bible. Oh, well, Swedenborg says that, first of all, the Philistines, you see, um, the geography of the Holy Land is that much of the area where the Israelites eventually settled was mountainous. But the Philistines lived down in the valley right down by the Mediterranean. And so the Philistines were people who had a religious perspective, but they were not about living their religion. They were all about the doctrine. You know, they're all about the teachings and all, you know, that's what the, so the Philistines are a picture of people who are in faith alone or people who are not living by the religion, even though they may be tremendously adamant about it. Uh, but that's a picture of the Philistines. And what the Philistines did, and I think the real, what the Philistines correspond to, didn't even really realize they were doing this, is just when you bring what Scripture sometimes refers to as a carnal mindset, a sort of a bodily perspective. We're down in the valley of Gerar here. When you bring that serpent-like mindset to Scripture, what you take for wisdom is nothing more than dust. In fact, I would submit that some people in our world look at the Bible as a dusty old book. Right? They would see that because if you look at the thing as just history, well, it's just some dust. I don't care what Abraham did or Phicol or what his name, Ahuzath, or what. It doesn't matter whether he named the wells or he didn't name them. Well, it doesn't matter. That doesn't mean anything. It's just a dusty old book. You know, you look at it from a materialist perspective, and this thing has nothing to teach us. It's just dust. Now, people may be very devoted to it, but all they're seeing, they're not seeing any of the spiritual or heavenly wisdom that's down there about how to love each other. In fact, a lot of these people are fighting to the death with each other about what this and that means. It's a big doctrinal argument or something. Uh, because that mindset fills this thing with, with dust. I, in other words, I think the real-life Philistines didn't even realize they were filling the well with dust. I think the ancient Philistines in this story may have known it was sort of malicious or something, but I'm not even sure it was malicious in this case. I think people just, that's the way they handled the word. That's the way they saw it. And over time, the whole thing just filled up with dust. So no one is getting any water out of it anymore. No one's getting wisdom about how to love others or, you know, like it's just not happening. And so, um, uh, how am I doing? So the um, Isaac is the realization that it's, that scripture is about love and about our life, that our lives are about love. Uh, he's the son of Abraham. Abraham's all about love. Isaac is the rational mind, but he's a rational mind that understands. It's about love. That's what we're doing here. So the Philistines are saying, it's all about doctrine. And are the Philistines, are the doctrine people and the love people fighting about the meaning of Scripture? Are they fighting about this well? Thank you. <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. The faith people and the love people fight about what Scripture means. I think it's about love. No, no, are you crazy? Did you see what it says? Come on. You know, and they're having a big fight about this well. And uh, so that, that, and Abraham and Isaac are living amongst the, the famine drove them where they're living there amongst the Philistines, and they're having arguments about these wells. What is the nature of these wells? And meanwhile, this ancient wisdom is buried underground, buried underground. All right. Okay, let's read some more scriptures. Um, okay, let's go to, um, 
Oh, let's go to Deuteronomy. So turn to the right, and we go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers to Deuteronomy. I want to go to Deuteronomy 30. Mm. Um, let's just read this beautiful thing at 11. I, I won't say why we're doing it right now, but let's 30 verses 11 to 14. Let's see what we got there. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Yes, well read. Yes, that you may do it. Uh, actually, the word is not, you know, the Lord's intent was not for the word to be some buried, like there's some wisdom you can't get to, you don't know where it is. It's out there in the wilderness somewhere, buried deep underground. No, it's supposed to be very close to us, so that in our mouth and in our heart, so that we can do it. Uh, that's, that's what this teaching is for. So it's a tragedy when these wells get filled in, and the Lord, meant by Isaac here, wants to uh, dig that out. Uh, let's go to, um, okay, yeah, let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew, the first of the Gospels there. I want to look at Matthew. Just want to read a few passages. Yeah, okay, right. 16, verse... Uh, 23, this is where, you know, I love this, where the Lord calls Peter Satan. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Ah, the key thing for tonight there is that there are things of God that you can have in your mind, and there are things of humankind that you can have in your mind. And those are two different things. And Peter has told him, Peter actually rebuked the Lord in the previous verse for saying that he was going to be crucified. The Lord said, I'm going to be crucified. Peter said, stop it. Shut up. Don't say that. You know? And the Lord said, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking human, you know, thoughts of human origin, not thoughts of divine origin. The reason I mention that tonight is that there was an argument about whose well this was. Does this come from human beings? The Abimelech perspective is, this is my, this is my wisdom. I thought it up. Even if you find the wisdom, say, it's my wisdom. I know that. But I, Abraham and Isaac are saying, oh no, that's mine. No, that's the Lord's. That's, that's a thing of God. That's not of you. So they make a covenant, and yet there's an immediate sort of like, wait, I think I thought this up myself, and I deserve huge credit here. And Abraham, the Lord, tries to say, uh, that's not your well. <laughs> that's my well. You know, I dug that well. <laughs> that, that truth comes from me. So there's the things of God and the things of men, and we need to be mindful of the things of God. Let's have a look at Luke. So turn through right through Mark to Luke chapter 20. A similar type of passage that came to mind. Let's just read verses 1 to 8 here in Luke 20, shall we? Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple. And this is Jesus. And preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Yeah. Is that your well? What are you doing? There's an argument. There's contention. There's strife, isn't there? What, what are you doing? Okay, and I love the Lord's answer. Okay, uh, and they say, Or who is he who gave you this authority? That's right. But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? You see, mindful of the things of God, Mindful of the things of men. Oh, was the baptism of John? Was it from heaven? Because there's two different things. It could, the well could belong to heaven. It could belong to people. 
So who was John the Baptist? Was he, was this Abraham's well or was is this a Philistine well? And so what do they say? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. <laughs> So they answered that they did not know where it was from. Yeah, they say, we don't know, but the Lord actually answers what they really meant. What does he say? And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Yes, what they really meant was, we are not willing to tell you our answer. <laughs> and he answers their real statement by saying, neither am I willing to tell you. And it's not just a random little trick that he played on them. His authority came from heaven. Where John came from is the same thing as where did Jesus come? You know, like you tell me that, I'll tell you by what authority. But if you're not open to that, why should I tell you where my authority came from? Is his authority from heaven? Is this a well that belongs to Abraham? Or is this a well of the Philistines? Is this just a human thing? Is John the Baptist just a sort of a, a sage, a, a, a wise and capable person? You know, did this just come from himself? Or is this from the Lord? Is this from heaven? So uh, you see why I bring that up now. And let's go to James. So if you turn to the right, it might almost be easier to go back to Revelation and go to the left or something. But... If you go all the way to the end of the book and go back through the epistles of John and Peter, you'll get back to James. I want James chapter 3. Now, I do need to make another bizarre point on top of the other bizarre points I've already made. Uh, Swedenborg makes the point that there are actually two different you can have a well, well is convenient, gives you water, but you have to have something to draw from it, right? You have a stone that covers it, so and so. You can have a well. There is something that's even better than a well, which is called a fountain. A fountain. Doesn't it say that those who believe in me, you know, like rivers of living water will pour from them, you know, it'll become a fountain in them springing up to everlasting life, that kind of thing. That there, you can have truth that's a well, you can have truth that's a, that's a fountain. The Lord is set up for both types. It's a well for people who have more of a truth orientation. It's actually a fountain for people who are more of the heart and of love. And so that figures into this story. But I think they're so close to each other that we can talk about them as equivalent. But let's look at James 3, verse 11, because it talks about fountains. Does a spring send forth fresh... A spring. It's a fountain in the Old King James. Go ahead. Does a spring fountain send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Hmm. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Uh -huh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. What a nice phrase. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Interesting that it's envy and strife in the old King James, and strife is what didn't the Philistines envy them and then they strive? They have strife, right? Envy and strife. So James is right on topic here. If you have bitter envying and what was your word instead of Self-seeking. Self-seeking in your hearts. Do not glory, don't lie against the truth. Okay, now we're going to have a little, another one of those things about where does your wisdom come from? Okay, here it goes. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Demonic, whoa. Okay, so there's... Wow, you can have demonic wisdom? Hmm, okay. So there's a wisdom that comes down from above, but if you're into that envy and strife and self-seeking and all that, there's a wisdom that comes from below, which is earthly, sensual, is that your word there? Mm -hmm. And demonic. Okay, go on. 
For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Yes. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Yes. So I wanted to read that. It came to mind because of the idea of what comes from about these two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom that now this is physically below the image of the well. But I think when we're talking about uh, the Philistines versus the patriarchs arguing over these wells, we're talking about where does wisdom come from? Is, does it come from below? And these people are saying, no, that it belongs to the Lord. You know, it, it's not of ourselves. It's not a, of a human origin. That is earthly, sensual, demonic. Uh, there's there's a, a good kind. Okay. Um, so, and uh, dust, here's another little weird connection, good friends. Dust is sometimes associated with scholarly research, is it not? Don't they sometimes talk about scholastic dust and this kind of thing? You know, the idea that people are re researching in old books. It's also interesting when you're talking about what do they have to do to redo those wells, dear reader? What do they have to do? Dig. What's our title? They had to dig. Oh, don't people use the word digging about research all the time? Don't you say, oh, I dug up some information. You know, I've been digging around in the vault and I found, an, you know, you don't go in there with a shovel. But that's digging. That's what digging is. So there's research. How do we reopen these wells? There's digging. There's also a passage I forgot to write down. Let me check real quick if it's Luke 13. If it isn't, I'll abandon ship. Uh, yes, Luke 13. Let's go there. Um, mm. Let's just read verses uh, 1 to 9 there. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? And then listen to this. I tell you no, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. So there's repentance. Okay, go on. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So would you say those were two stories in a row about repentance? Mm -hmm. And the threat, if we don't repent, that we will all likewise perish. Okay, and then immediately after that, he tells a parable. What's his parable? A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Oh, would you say it was almost like sort of a well that was giving you no water? I don't know. Okay, go on. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Oh, and what does the other person say? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Oh, we're going to be digging, are we? <laughs> we just had two stories about repentance, and all of a sudden we're digging. Interesting. Okay, digging. Okay, go on. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. Okay, so... I think that passage very clearly shows that digging has something to do with repentance. And why would that be? Why would repentance have something to do with digging? Well, a component of repentance that's very important is self-examination. So, it's, isn't that digging? Don't people talk about like a deep dive or a, you know dig, digging into what lies underneath this or you know that kind of thing? Uh, so, digging has something to do with repentance. It has something to do with like like research and going down. You know penetrating in and trying to find what, what these secrets are that are underneath there. Okay, 
So, um, so I think this is a question, part of this redigging of the wells, isn't it about the need to kind of refigure out what the text is really about? The text, all those wells of the text got filled in. By the way, let me explain real quick if, if I possibly can. This is sort of what Swedenborg says, if I'm not butchering it here, that uh, that first well that they dug that they fought over was whether there's heavenly meaning in the text. And the love people said, oh, there is. But the Philistines said, no, there's no heavenly meaning in the text. Then they had a second well that was about the spiritual meaning in the text. But they had a fight about it. The love people said, oh, there's a spiritual meaning in the text. But the, but the other people, the Philistines said, no, there's no spiritual meaning in the text. But they finally got to the wide streets. And the wide street means the, the true, it's just the literal sense of Scripture. It's just a wide street. And everybody can, so I think there's a literal meaning to Scripture. Oh, I do too. Okay, fine, we won't fight today then. That's what Rehoboth is. Rehoboth, so in terms of literalism, you know, like, is there a little literal meaning? Yeah, there's a literal meaning. Okay, fine, we won't fight about that. But we'll fight all day about whether there's anything deeper within it because we have very different perspectives on it. Uh, that's my sense of what Swedenborg means about those three wells and why they, it's so, so fascinating, isn't it? They fight about the first two, but they have no problem with the third. You know, so you, you step down, you finally get to the literal meaning. You say, well, yeah, we, you know, it's not that everybody would agree exactly about what it means, but the fact that, you know, you should read the Bible or whatever. I'm not saying there aren't people in the world who don't disagree with that. The Philistines are people within religion, you know. I mean, this is not talking about people outside of it. They're just people who believe in faith alone or are not living by it. Uh, but they can uh, agree. Oh, no, the Bible's important. Yeah, we all agree that that's important. Okay, good, 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 good. Uh, so the Lord is giving, uh, uh, has, has, he has uh, taken this ancient wisdom, this crucial, much-needed wisdom, and over time, it got filled in by a materialist perspective. All we saw in there was dust. We didn't see the water, didn't see the love, didn't see the nourishment in there. We just saw, oh, no, it's about how many years, so it's about this battle, or it's about some geographical place over there. So just dust. No, just dust. Piles and piles of dust. That's, that's all we see there. That, that's all it is. But the Lord is talking about a time when these are going to be dug out again. They're going to be dug out again, and this ancient wisdom will come into play again. This ancient truth will, will nourish us, and it's truth about love. And so, you know, we're invited to take part in this redigging. Let's figure it out. Another thing I was thinking about in these thoughts was... Um, uh, that appearance of the star in the east, it seems similar about the promise, uh, you know, of truth to come. I don't know. I don't know how to put it into words, but, but that, that we will find, and it's the ancient people who see this. They say, oh, I know, the, you know, the Lord is born. They get very excited about it. There's ancient wisdom about how to love people effectively. And, um, you know, a lot of people are interested in the subject of ancient wisdom and so on. Um, but we might be tempted to think that, well, it's probably written in an ancient form of Chinese in a cave in Mongolia or something, you know, and we may not be able to find it or read it if we ever got it. Or this ancient wisdom is probably written in runes uh, on the Orkney Islands and you know, we'll never be able to find it and get it. You know, where, where are we going to find this? But Moses says, it is not far off. It is not far off. It's right here. We're standing on it. It's right in this old... Oh, it's old. It's an old book. My book is so old it's falling apart. It's an old book. That old thing? The old Bible? That dusty old Bible? Yeah. It's old. 
and yet it still sells 800 million copies a year. The Lord has made sure that these wells, how many wells did they dig? Wow, wells and wells and wells, and then they make an agreement. Hey, we dug another well. Isn't that great? Lots of wells. There's going to be lots of water here. Uh, This ancient wisdom is right here in front of us. I'm not saying it isn't in Upper Mongolia, but I think there's also wisdom right here in the Bible that's been covered over with dust, but we can re-dig that out again. And uh, the Garden of Eden, that o- one of the opening images in Scripture there, is a Garden of Eden because it's fed by how many rivers? Is it one? No. Is it two? No. Is it three? No. Is it four? Yeah. It's four rivers. It's fed by four <laughs> rivers. It's very well-watered land, right? That's a key when you're in a desert place. That water makes a big difference to whether you're doing the Garden of Eden or not. So let's look in the Old Testament. About in the middle of your Bible, if you go to the Psalms and Isaiah, turn to the right and go through Jeremiah to Ezekiel. I want to go to Ezekiel chapter... uh, No, I tell you what. Let's go to the left and go to Jeremiah 31 first. Jeremiah 31... uh, Verses 10 to 12, and this is a picture of how things can look. If we can actually open up these ancient wells again and draw from this water and understand how to practice love in this world and so on, wow, what a different world this could be. And Jeremiah talks about this in 31 verses, uh, let's see, uh, like 10 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. Yes. See, these are all the nations. Everybody can know about this. Even in the islands, the most remote places, they're going to hear about this. He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Mm. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Mm. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. Wow, what a phrase, huh? Streaming to the goodness of the Lord. Uh-huh. For wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. A well-watered garden. Your soul will be like a well-watered garden. It's worth trying to open up those ancient water sources. They're still there under the desert. We may not have seen them for a while, but we we can bring them back and turn to the right to Ezekiel, and I want to go to Ezekiel 36. Beautiful, beautiful chapter about the heart transplant and all this kind of stuff, but we'll just cut to the chase and read verses 33 to 36 there. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. See, isn't this about repentance and stuff that the Lord can cleanse us? This is part of the digging process. Uh huh. The desolate land shall be tilled. Oh, it'll be tilled, okay. Instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. Oh, and what will those passers-by say? So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Mm. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Wow. Go on. Then the nations which are left all around, you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. I will do it. The Lord is going to do it. This is one of the few places that it mentions the Garden of Eden after Genesis. It, you know, it only comes up a few times, but right here, this is a promise that this desolate land is going to be tilled, so our work on the land is important, but the water source is very, you'll be like a well, your souls will be like well-watered gardens. You'll have that, that water supply, that supply of truth will be re, 
established. Uh, because the Lord doesn't want to keep this. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord doesn't want to keep this information away from us. Uh, he'll protect it if it needs protecting or whatever, but he really would rather us know that this is all about love. So, in conclusion, there are wells of ancient wisdom buried beneath the dusty surface of the Bible. That wisdom concerns the most effective, transformative ways to show love to one another. It's about time we redug these wells and got them working again. Thank you for your kind attention, good friends. Shall we close with a prayer? Oh Lord, we thank you for the treasure that lies hidden within your word. We thank you for the promise that this will be restored. It's so important for the ancient uh, wisdom to be rediscovered. I think of the fact that those wise men came to witness your birth, a connection between that ancient wisdom and you, and you looking forward to us and wanting to turn our souls, our hearts and minds into well-watered gardens, wanting to make us fruitful, wanting to teach us the wisdom of how to love, to give us wells in our valleys and springs in our mountains so that we become flourishing as individuals and as a people together, your people, your children, your Garden of Eden. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. We can redig those wells. Yeah.